On lectures in history, SUNY at Buffalo professor Carol Emberton teaches a class about Andersonville, the Confederate Civil War military prison where 13,000 Union soldiers died, and the post-war trial of its commander, Henry Wirtz. She also discusses the halt of the prisoner exchange program toward the end of the war and how the Wirtz trial was used as a precedent for later war crimes proceedings. Her class is about an hour. All right, well, uh, welcome everyone today. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, Henry Wirtz, who was the commandant of Andersonville Prison Camp, which you uh, may have heard of. It's one of the most notorious prisoner of war camps, uh, sort of in the history of modern warfare. It was a Confederate uh, prison for Union soldiers uh, in the southwest of Georgia. Um, and we're going to be talking about hanging Henry Wirtz. Wirtz was executed for his role um, in perpetuating, according to uh, the federal government, uh, mistreatment uh, and murder at that camp. Uh, and he was one of the first individuals in the modern era to be tried for war crimes. And Henry Wirtz's trial um, in the fall of 1865 actually set the precedent for more recent war crimes trials, most notably uh, the Nuremberg trials of Nazi uh, perpetrators after World War II, the American or the Allied prosecutors who were preparing for those prosecutions um, in uh, Nuremberg actually studied the Wirtz trial and particularly his defense so that they could prepare for what they anticipated uh, the Nazi defense would be. And they actually called it the Wirtz defense, um, which was basically, you know, I was only following orders. Right? That's the typical defense. And they used Henry Wirtz's trial to help prepare for that um, in 1945. So this is a really important moment, not only in American legal history, but also in world legal history. And we're going to be thinking about... The, the prison at Andersonville itself and what led conditions there to be so horrible um, and, and what led to the, you know, catastrophic loss of life that was suffered there in 1864. We'll also think about if Andersonville differed considerably from other POW camps. It wasn't the only POW camp by a long shot, and they were all pretty horrible in the Civil War. Um, but we'll think about what, if anything, made Andersonville different. And finally, we want to think about whether or not Henry Wirtz was, in fact, guilty of war crimes. And did he deserve the punishment he received? Did he deserve to die uh, for his role in the events um, in 1864 at Andersonville? So our terms and concepts for today, Henry Wirtz, Andersonville Prison, the Prisoner Exchange, and we'll be revisiting a topic we've talked about several times throughout the semester, and that is the Lieber Code. Okay, Okay. so who was Henry Wirtz? He was a native of Switzerland who immigrated to the United States. Actually, no one's entirely sure when. It's possible he could have been what was known at the time as a 48er, uh, sort of a refugee from the democratic revolutions of Western Europe that occurred around 1848. There were a lot of refugees um, after those revo revolutions were over, so it's possible Henry Wirtz could have immigrated around that time. We really don't know much about his life 
prior to his arrival in the United States. He never spoke publicly about his life. Uh, the Consul General of Switzerland, who wrote a letter to President Andrew Johnson on his behalf uh, when Wirtz was on trial for war crimes, wrote that, you know, he didn't give a lot of detail either, but he did say that Wirtz came from a very good background and had esteemable parents, uh, you know, and came from a very respectable family. But we really don't know a lot about him, and he never spoke publicly about his life in Europe. Um, once he arrives in the United States, he marries a fairly wealthy widow from Kentucky, um, and he settles in Kentucky for a while before eventually moving to Louisiana. And once in Louisiana, Wirtz sets up a medical practice. Now, he, there's no evidence that he ever received any kind of medical training, although he did say he'd always wanted to be a doctor, um, but his father had pushed him into the to business, right? He didn't want him to be a physician. Uh, so once he's in Louisiana, Wirtz sets up a medical practice, which, as you know from our previous discussions about uh, medicine in the 19th century and during the Civil War, that really wasn't uncommon. That was the way things were done in the 19th century. You would uh, apprentice with a practicing physician and then eventually kind of go out on your own. There were medical colleges where you could get degrees, but at that time it wasn't required that you have formal medical training to practice as a physician. It was more of an apprenticeship kind of thing. And so that's what Henry Wirtz did. And so in the years leading up to the Civil War, Wirtz is a country doctor uh, in rural Louisiana. And when the war breaks out in 1861, like most, you know, patriotic Southern men, uh, Dr. Wirtz enlists with the Confederate forces. Um, and he serves with distinction through 1862. He's actually wounded at the Battle of Seven Pines in May of 1862 um, and is wounded severely in his right arm and actually loses uh, all use of his right arm. Um, he's cited for bravery and he is promoted to the rank of captain. After he recovers from his wounds, he, because he speaks fluent French and German as well as English, he is sent on some special diplomatic missions by the Confederacy to Europe, trying to get those European nations to come uh, and support the Confederacy and come out on the side of the South. Um, so he spends most of 1863 in Europe doing, uh, it's not really clear exactly who he's visiting or what he's doing, but he's on kind of a diplomatic tour for the Confederacy. And when he returns to the South in early 1864, in the spring of 1864, he is given the job of being the commandant or the administrator of this new prison camp that's being built in Southwest Georgia, which becomes known uh, infamously as Andersonville Prison. And at the time, Wirtz probably would think that this is a pretty good way to sit out the rest of the war. Right? He's not going to be in battle. His life is not going to be at risk. This is a pretty good job for someone who's, who's seriously, you know, he can't use his arm anymore, so he's impaired. Um, he'll get to live with his family. His wife and children will be able to live nearby the camp. So all in all, this isn't a bad post, right? Um, but he doesn't really know uh, the situation that's going to be facing him once he arrives in southwest Georgia um, at what is officially known as Camp Sumter. Uh, and Camp Sumter is near the nearest town, uh, is the railroad depot of Andersonville. So it becomes known as Andersonville Prison. So Camp Sumter, 
uh, was built in early 1864. And I use the term built very loosely because as you can see from this picture, sort of, um, there's not a lot of building in Camp Sumter, right? Uh, most of the men you can see here, uh, the prisoners are living in tents and kind of makeshift accommodation. Uh, it was originally intended to house about, at maximum, 10,000 prisoners of war. That was the maximum capacity uh, that this um, prison could hold. It was about 27 acres, the main confine. Um, you can see here from this drawing, it was bounded by a very high stockade fence um, that goes all the way around the perimeter. Um, there's a creek, it's called the Sweetwater Creek, that actually runs here under the stockade through the middle of the uh, camp. So there is a fresh water supply for the men there, but as you can imagine, the further in the creek flows into the camp, the worse the quality of the water gets. So that this is this part right up here that flows right under closest to the stockade fence is the most sought after water in the camp. And that's going to become important for a story I'm going to tell you in just a minute. So um, and on top of the fences, you can see I'll point out to you. I think you can see them a little bit in this um, picture. On the top of the stockade spaced out periodically are what was known as a pigeon roost which were the guard towers, where the guards sat uh, with their rifles guarding the prisoners. And as you can tell, there are many more prisoners than there are guards, right? Um, and so that's why they're spaced out like they are on top of the fence. This, running along the bottom of the, uh, near the edge of the stockade, this is the latrine, also known as the sink, which you can see is just sort of a makeshift long trough of a toilet and you can actually see some individuals using the toilet there uh, that stretches sort of the length of one side of the stockade fence. And another thing I want to point out to you about the camp that you can notice in this photograph, right here you can sort of see a long sort of low railing. It's a piece of wood that is stretching sort of the length here in front of the sink. Let's see if we go back. You can also get a sense of it here, and there's a space between this low railing and the stockade, and you see this sort of you know space all along the edge of the fence that's devoid of people because the railing is keeping them back. And that, you can see it here as well, was what was known as the deadline. Because if a prisoner stepped over or crossed the deadline, they were liable to be shot by one of the guards in the pigeon roost. And the deadline was there as a way to keep the prisoners back, to keep them from rushing towards the fence, climbing the fence, uh, or starting any kind of mutiny or move to overthrow the guards. And the guards, according to witnesses and survivors of Andersonville, did in fact... Uh, shoot men when they attempted to cross the deadline. And this is an illustration uh, from one survivor's testimony who claimed that they witnessed uh, a Union soldier who was trying to reach over the deadline with his cup. 
um, and to get some of that fresher water, if you recall. Some of that water that's just flowing into the camp. He's trying to reach over the deadline to dip his cup in the fresher water, and he's shot for reaching over the deadline. Now, as you can imagine, um, this is not a pleasant place to be, right? It, from about April of 1864 uh, through its, the peak um, time in which the camp had its mo- the most inmates from April 1864 about until October 1864. The camp, which originally was meant to house about 10,000 POWs through that time, has anywhere between 20 and 40,000 POWs during that time. The peak month for uh, the population was August of 1864. So it's incredibly overcrowded. However, um, as historians have pointed out, that population tended to fluctuate dramatically. It's at its peak in August of 1864 when it has between 30 and 40,000 prisoners in it. But at other times during the 14-month existence of this camp, and that's really all it existed, 14 months, it probably has less than the appointed 10,000 POWs that it was supposed to have in the first place. So there's a lot of movement in and out of the camp. Prisoners are being transferred from other Confederate prisons. They're being transferred to other Confederate prisons. And, of course, men are dying all the time. Um, These conditions, particularly the overcrowding, the putrid water, which is breeding not only disease but also mosquitoes, Men are suffering from dysentery, from gangrene, from pneumonia, from scurvy. They're suffering from malnutrition and exposure. You know, southwest Georgia is incredibly hot in the summer. It's also pretty cold in the winter. And they have very little of any kind of adequate shelter. Um, So, at its peak, by by the early fall... Of 1864, 5,000 men died between August and October 1864, I believe. All in total, nearly 13,000 Union soldiers died in Andersonville in its entire existence. That's a death rate of about 45% of the total population. So it's extremely high. Um, Let's see. more. There is the National Cemetery, which now exists at Andersonville. And if you're ever in the in the vicinity, you can go there and visit. Most of the soldiers uh, who are buried there have been identified, positively identified, uh, but several hundred remain unknown there at the cemetery. Another um, notorious facet of Andersonville prison uh, were the Andersonville Raiders. Now, these were gangs of inmates, of Union soldiers, who were armed with clubs and knives and various other kind of makeshift implements, and they terrorized the other inmates in the camp. They robbed people of their rations, of their personal property, and they were also reported to have beaten and killed 
inmates in the attempts to uh, rob them. Things get so bad with the raiders that a group of another group of inmates organize themselves into a kind of police force. They call themselves the regulators, um, and ultimately end up capturing several uh, dozen of the raiders. And they have an actual trial. They put six of the leaders on trial. And as you can see here from this drawing, they end up with the permission of the camp superintendent, Henry Wirtz, um, as well as some higher up, some of Wirtz's superiors in the Confederate government. They get permission to hold this trial and they ultimately execute. They hang six of these sort of ringleaders of these raiders. And this becomes one of the most, um, you know, notorious moments uh, in Andersonville's history. And it gives you some indication of what a sort of state of nature, right, these men are living in within the camp. Not only are they suffering from disease and malnutrition and mistreatment from the Confederate um, authorities there, they're also at risk from, from each other. Right. And from people who would take advantage of the situation to try to better their own situation, to get more food um, or to get other kinds of property off the less fortunate. So it really was a, a horrible place. Now, one of the things, if you've done much reading or you've heard much about Andersonville, some people will often say that Andersonville was no worse than any other prisoner of war camp, in particular some of the most notorious uh, POW camps in the north, Elmira Prison, uh, which is not too far from here. Anybody from near the Elmira area? Right. So there was uh, a large um, prisoner of war camp at Elmira. There was also, there was also another very large one I'm going to talk about in a minute um, outside of Chicago. Okay. And sometimes people will say, you know what, Andersonville was no worse than these other prisons. I kind of take issue with that. And here's a picture of the evening roll call at Elmira Prison in 1864. And I think from looking at this image, you can tell why. There was a significant difference, in my mind, between the conditions at Andersonville. We go back and look. Right? And what you see at Elmira. Number one, there's a lot more built structures or barracks for the prisoners uh, to stay in. Now, Elmira suffers from the same kind of overcrowding, which I'm going to explain and why that is in just a few minutes, that Andersonville does. So there are far more prisoners in Elmira than they could actually properly house. So you can see in the back they've set up tents, and a lot of the men do, in fact, live in tents rather than you know, uh, actual housing. Um, but to me, I mean, this image looks nothing like, right, the images that you see uh, from Andersonville, which is not to say that Elmira was a great place to be. No prisoner of war camp is a great place to be uh, in any war, right? It's not intended to be. And who wants to spend, you know, a winter in upstate New York sleeping out in a tent, Right? None of us. We've all experienced. It's not fun. It's it's brutally cold. Um, and the death rate at Elmira, which was known uh, by the nickname Hellmira, by the men who were uh, imprisoned there, um, the death rate at Elmira hovered around 25% compared to the 45% at Andersonville, which is still 
I'm not trying to diminish it, but it, you know, it's still incredibly high. All total, about 3,000 Confederate soldiers who were imprisoned in Elmira died there. So there were about 12,000 total. And they suffered largely from the same kind of ailments that the Union soldiers at Andersonville did. They suffered from malnutrition. They didn't have enough food. They suffered from exposure, pneumonia, outbreaks of various kinds of diseases like influenza and smallpox, dysentery. Uh, There was also a problem with drainage and putrid water standing within the camp that bred sickness and disease. Um, So really, you know, we might think of the differences between Elmira and Andersonville not really in terms of kind, but of scale, right? The scale of of sickness uh, and overcrowding in Elmira is simply not to the scale uh, that we see it at Andersonville. Uh, There is now a national cemetery at Elmira as well, and there is a monument there uh, to the Confederate soldiers who died. Uh, Camp Douglas was in Chicago, and it was initially used um, as a training camp, as was Elmira uh, initially as well. Um, But, you know, fairly early on, Camp Douglas becomes one of the first Union POW camps for Confederate prisoners. As early as 1862, they're housing uh, Confederate um, prisoners there. And like Elmira... There are far more soldiers in 1864 than the the camp can reasonably accommodate. Uh, And they suffer from the same kinds of problems, malnutrition, exposure. The death rate at Camp Douglas is somewhere between, historians estimate, 17 and 23 percent. And that's because there's some discrepancy with actually how many soldiers, Confederate soldiers, died there. Uh, This is a mass grave in the nearby Oakwood Cemetery in Chicago where, according to the monument, there are 6,000 Confederate soldiers buried under this mound. But camp records only list about 4,000. So there are about 1,500 to 2,000 sort of unaccounted for uh, people. So somewhere between four and 6,000 Confederate soldiers died um, at Camp Douglas. Um, and again, from the same kinds of conditions that soldiers died of at Elmira and at Andersonville. Chicago, it's, it's incredibly cold in the winter. I spent 13 years in Chicago uh, in college and graduate school, and I would not want to sleep in a tent, you know, on the lakes of, uh, you know, lake shore of Lake Michigan. It would not be fun. Um, so these camps, none of them are any place anyone would want to be. They're brutal. The conditions, the living conditions are bare bones. And a lot of the men who are arriving at these camps were already either wounded or sick, and if you're already wounded and sick and your immune system's compromised, this kind of exposure and lack of proper food um, is only going to contribute to your decline. So, and, you know, they're not places where one goes to flourish and to be healthy and well. They are, in a sense, any 
prisoner of war camp, a place where uh, men went to die. Some people who talk about and write about uh, these prisoner of war camps will say that the conditions in places like Elmira and Camp Douglas, the northern POW camps, were as bad were as bad as they were because the Union was retaliating against the treatment that their soldiers were receiving in Confederate camps like Andersonville and Libby Prison, Belle Isle, some of the others. And there is some sort of, you know, kind of loose anecdotal evidence to suggest that the men who are running these camps are certainly not inclined to uh, be particularly um, energetic or speedy in providing uh, the Confederate POWs there with the kinds of things that they need. Um, so, for instance, there uh, was one uh, superintendent of Camp Douglas who, it appears, replaced all the wood-burning stoves in the barracks with boilers that didn't produce, according to the men who live there, enough heat or as much heat as the wood-burning stoves did. And they also tended not to cook the food as well. And so some people will say, well, he did that on purpose, right? Because... Uh, Union soldiers were suffering from the cold and and deprivation, and so they were trying to sort of pay back the Confederate POWs for that. Um, there's really not a lot of hard evidence to suggest that there was a, you know, a concerted Union policy to say, you know what, our men are suffering at Andersonville, so we're going to make it just as bad for these Confederate soldiers in these camps. But the fact of the matter is, uh, again, it's a not a difference so much in kind, but in scale. And if we remember, if we go back to the Lieber Code, which we looked at several weeks ago, one of the articles of the Lieber Code, which was the codified uh, sort of rules of warfare uh, during the Civil War, allowed for prisoners of war to be subject to the infliction of retaliatory measures. Now, specifically, Francis Lieber here is talking and, and writing about Lincoln's retaliatory order um, that he issued in 1863, if you recall, when the Confederate government said any black soldier or white commander of black troops who are caught will not be given quarter, right? They will not be treated as prisoners of war. They will be subject either to be sold into slavery or executed. When the Confederacy releases that order, actually they release it in the fall of 1862 after the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln then issues what's known as his retaliation order, in which he says, for every black soldier or white officer that's executed, we will execute one Confederate prisoner of war. Now, to my knowledge, they never did that. That never happened. I could be wrong. I've never seen evidence of that. Um, it's, it's entirely possible, but I don't think it ever occurred. But it was a threat. It was a retaliation order and is, according to Lieber, perfectly permissible to, to do that during war. So this is one of these, even though, as we're going to get to in just a second, the Lieber Code 
had expressed prohibitions against the mistreatment of prisoners of war. This is one of these gray areas in the Libra Code that although you're not supposed to mistreat prisoners, you're supposed to feed them, you're supposed to give them medical care, you're not supposed to mistreat them uh, in any way, they are, according to Libra, still liable to this kind of retaliatory measure when, um, when they happen. Another uh, sort of criticism or uh, question that, that some people will raise about Andersonville is the question of whether or not Sherman, William Sherman, as after he captures Atlanta and he goes on his march to the sea, if he in fact could have liberated Andersonville. And why didn't he, right? So this is a map of Georgia. Um, and this is the town, the star represents the town of Americus, Georgia, which is the, which is a town very near where Andersonville was. So that's the general vicinity there in southwest Georgia, uh, where Andersonville prison was located. And if you recall, in, uh, September of 1864, Atlanta falls to Sherman's army. And between September and November, he's laying out his plan. He's planning the march to the sea, which will ultimately take him to Savannah, right? So he doesn't really go in the direction of um, Sumter, but could he? Could he have done so? Well, certainly Sherman um, and folks knew about Andersonville. Prisoners had escaped from there. Uh, so they knew that things were pretty bad there. However, I think it is, um, you know, a, a bad assumption to think that Sherman could have reasonably done anything to alleviate the suffering of the men at Andersonville simply because of the timeline. By the time that Atlanta falls and Sherman begins his march in November, right, about November the 15th of 1864, by that time, the vast majority of the men who died at Andersonville have already died. And by the time that Sherman does begin his march out of Atlanta towards Savannah on November the 15th, the population of Andersonville Prison has fallen to about 1,500 men by that time. Once the city of Atlanta falls, Confederate officials, because Andersonville is so relatively close, uh, they begin moving a lot of the prisoners out to other prison camps, and they actually begin transporting them up to the Carolinas. Okay? So they don't want, because they don't want them to escape. They don't want them to be liberated. So by the, and, and a lot of the men already, like I said, have died. So it would only have been about 1,500 men or so left at Andersonville by that time. Um, and, and Sherman knows this, right? He realizes this. Um, so he doesn't, you know, really consider the possibility of veering off his course or sending some of his men that way, right? Because we talked about Sherman's march last week. He's really focused on what is ahead of him, of getting to the sea, um, and of ultimately, you know, bringing the war to an end closer. So the idea that Sherman could have averted the horrors of Andersonville or alleviated Union suffering there, I don't think simply because of the timeline, it would have made that much of a difference by that point. So why were 
these prisons, not only Andersonville, but also the northern ones, why were they so overcrowded? That's the key question to understanding why the conditions were so bad at Andersonville um, and the other prisoner of war camps, I think. And that had to do with the collapse of the prisoner exchange system. So the prisoner, when the war begins, it's sort of convention to have a prisoner exchange, particularly among officers, but also for larger groups of enlisted men. Um, and what would often happen, it was sort of an, you know, an informal um, exchange. You know, we have a group of your guys, you have a group of our guys. They would simply exchange them. And they would go back to fight, although they weren't supposed to go back into the armies, they all did. Um, and they would simply exchange them in because it's very taxing on an army's resources to try to take care of a lot of prisoners of war. You gotta, you know, build camps for them. You have to have guards, which means you're taking men out of your, you know, fighting force to, to work as guards and policemen. So it's not ideal to have large amounts of POWs. So they try to exchange them that way. And that was the way things were up until the Union Army starts enlisting black soldiers. And the Confederacy refuses to exchange any captured black soldiers. And because they refuse to exchange black soldiers, Lincoln, President Lincoln brings the prisoner exchange to a halt. He issues a command to all of his military officers that they are not to exchange any prisoners so long as the Confederacy refuses to exchange African-American prisoners. Um, and so this happens, the collapse of the prisoner exchange, before Ulysses S. Grant becomes the commander of the majority of Union forces, the Army of the Potomac. Um, a lot of critics of Grant will use this quotation of his and say that, you know, he needlessly allowed these men to suffer and die in Andersonville. The collapse of the prisoner exchange was not his policy. It was a policy of the president. Um, and he approached Robert E. Lee several times throughout 1864 as the, as these population of prisoners are growing and growing and growing. And he approaches him about the reinstatement of the exchange. Let's reinstate the prisoner exchange. Will you exchange black prisoners? And Lee responds, I do not have the authority to exchange black prisoners because the Confederate government would refuse to exchange them. And Grant and Lincoln both agree that as long as the Confederacy refuses to exchange black prisoners, they can't, in good faith, participate in the exchange at all. Now, a lot of the men who are, of course, sitting in these putrid conditions in Andersonville don't care, right? They want the exchange to get moving again. They want to go home. They're dying there, of course. But both Grant and Lincoln agree that... They have, you know, asked African-American men to fight and to die on behalf of a country that up until that point had really not given them much reason to do so. And by this point, um, you know, several hundred thousand African-Americans by the war's end will have fought uh, for the Union Army. They can't very well simply say, okay, well, we'll exchange all our white soldiers and you can keep any black captives you might have. 
right? It's just morally wrong. It's terrible for the morale. How can you expect any more African Americans to come and join the fight if they know that their commanders and their country think so little of them, right? So it really is, you know, a, a, a sticking point morally for both Lincoln and Grant, and they, and they refuse to exchange any prisoners if the Confederacy will not exchange black prisoners as well. Um, so Grant here is right. He said, you know, I, it's hard on our men to be in Southern prisoners, um, but when we start releasing Confederate prisoners, they're simply going to go back into their ranks and pick up the guns and start fighting again. And But it's really for Grant, it's not simply a matter of trying to outlast the Confederate supply of manpower. There's all, it's more complicated than that, and there's a serious moral imperative at stake uh, for both Grant and Lincoln uh, regarding the exchange of black soldiers along with white ones. So the, the collapse of the prisoner exchange is really important if we're going to understand why the population of these prisons grows so astronomically in 1864, um, why conditions get so out of hand there. Um, but it's not a simple case of just saying, oh, well, the, the government let this happen, right? Both Lincoln and Grant felt like they were not in a position to do otherwise, right? It's a complicated issue. So, Wirtz probably, certainly never expected to be put on trial for war crimes in the first place because the idea of war crimes really comes into being through Wirtz's trial, right? So he's kind of the first person to get charged with this in the modern era. And another piece of evidence that suggests, you know, he didn't imagine that he was going to in any way be held accountable or prosecuted uh, for what happened at Andersonville is that when the war is over, he just goes to his house, which is next to the prison, and he stays there. And he waits for the Union soldiers to arrive and liberate the camp, which they do. Um, and he doesn't expect they're going to hold him accountable for that. But he is arrested in May of 1865. He's taken to Washington, D.C. Um, and let's see, in the fall of that year, beginning in August, he is put on trial. And it's important to note that this trial is not a civilian trial. Like the trial of the Lincoln conspirators that I talked about the other day, um, the trial is conducted by a military tribunal. And that was controversial at the time. A lot of people thought that both the Lincoln conspirators and Wirtz should, be, should have been tried by a civilian court. Um, but the Army and the federal government thought, you know, this is... Even though peace has technically been declared, right, the war is technically over at this time, um, this is still part of the war itself, right? And, uh, and they wanted to, and they wanted to hold, um, they saw what the Lincoln conspirators done as an extension of the Confederate war, or the Confederate war effort as an act of war. And likewise, they were holding Wirtz, um, to trial for his wartime actions. So that's how they justify uh, a military tribunal. So um, he's tried by a military convention, uh, commission. 
the government hopes to prove really what they're trying to do is not simply hold Wirtz accountable, which they are, because people are really, uh, you know, up in arms about Andersonville and how many men have died there and the survivors are, are coming back in terrible condition. They want to hold someone accountable, but they also intend to lay the groundwork for future trials, they hope, of high-ranking Confederate leaders, men like President Jefferson Davis and perhaps even uh, General Robert E. Lee. They believe that, um, and they want to prove that there was a broader conspiracy uh, among these high-ranking Confederate officials to deprive these Union soldiers, these Union prisoners of war, of life um, and to and to you know act vengefully uh, and maliciously against them, and so that's what they're hoping to do with this trial. In addition to holding uh, Wirtz accountable, so Wirtz is charged not simply with being an incompetent uh, supervisor or superintendent; he is actually charged with maliciously knowing of all the sort of mistreatment and abuse that's going on, allowing it to happen. But in at least 13 cases, he's charged with committing uh, murders by his own hand. So he's charged with 13 counts of murder that he committed personally. Um, He was charged with shooting with his revolver prisoners, He was charged with at least one count of stomping a prisoner to death. He was also charged with allowing dogs to maul prisoners who had escaped or had attempted to escape. He was charged with giving orders to the guards to shoot men from the pigeon roosts. Now, at the trial, there was not a lot in the way of a direct eyewitness testimony that Wirtz had done any of these things. Most of the evidence amounted to hearsay, right? Oh, someone told me that they heard someone say that Wirtz had shot someone, right? So there was not a lot in the way of direct testimony. And this is a key difference between a military tribunal and a civilian court, because in a civilian court... Hearsay evidence is not admissible. But in a military tribunal, the the level of proof that one must produce is much looser than what would, you know, is much less stringent than in a civilian court. Which is why some people at the time certainly worked as lawyers and some people who were advocating for him said, you know, this isn't right. This, this military tribunal, it's, it would be really easy to railroad someone, right, if that's what you had in mind. It would be much easier to do that than it would be in a civilian case. And they had said the same thing, Mary Surratt's lawyers had said the same thing about her trial by military commission um, earlier that year. So it was a controversial, um, you know, move to try him before a military tribunal. The commission saw photographic evidence like this. And these are actual photographs taken of Andersonville survivors. And once they're presented with this kind of photographic evidence, you know, that is very hard to deny. That men did not, you know, the men who survived Andersonville, they left looking like this. 
right? They're, they're skeletons. They're severely emaciated. Many of those who were liberated in the spring of 1865 didn't live because they were too far gone already. Um, so this was very powerful evidence against Henry Wirth. How can he explain this? Right? And the prosecutors would point to the Libra Code, right, which we've already studied, and various articles talking about how the prisoners of, prisoners of war are not supposed to be mistreated. They're not supposed to be starved. They're supposed to be given adequate food. Uh, they're not supposed to be mutilated. Um, you know, they're supposed to be given medical treatment where that's possible. And the fact that Wirtz was a physician... Right? He worked as a doctor before the war. Several people in his trial pointed out that he knew that. He was a doctor. He should have known these men were so ill. And he should have done more to provide them with care, with medicine. For his part, what is Wirt's defense? What kind of defense can you put onto this? Well, first of all, to the charges that he had by his own hand murdered uh, prisoners, he did, flat out denied it. Right? He said, "There's no, I didn't do that. Right? I did not kill anyone. And to the, to the overall conditions at the prison, he said, look, I did the best with what I had. Camp was horribly overcrowded because the prisoner exchange had collapsed. The Confederacy, we, you know, they didn't have money to feed its own soldiers or, or provisions or resources to take care of its own men. How was I supposed to take care of these inmates I had when I had nothing to feed them with? I would have fed them if I had stuff to feed them with. I would have given them medicine if I had had medicine to give them. But I had nothing to work with. Because the Confederacy by this time was collapsing, right? It was on its last leg. He said, what could I do? I could only, you know, work with what I had. And I told, you know, my superiors in Richmond that, you know, I needed help. But they said there was no help. So what could I do? I was given this job. This was my job. You know, I I was just doing the best I could. I was just following orders. But that wasn't good enough. The military commission found him guilty. And on November the 10th, 1865, he was executed in the same prison uh, yard that Mary Surratt and the Lincoln conspirators were executed the previous July. Um, And this is a, a picture just moments after he actually drops through the scaffold. Wirtz is buried in the same cemetery as Mary Surratt, Mount Olivet Cemetery in Washington, D.C. And you can see here uh, they have put a, a small marker on his grave. It says Captain Henry Wirtz, CSA, Confederate States of America, Confederate hero, martyr, died November 10, 1865. So how should we remember Henry Wirtz? Was, should we think of him as a martyr? A martyr, I, I'm confused by that because if you think of a, mar, a martyr to what, right? There's supposed to be some bigger cause that one is martyred for. I don't know, you know, how to think about Wirtz as a martyr. But it's also, I'll admit, 
difficult for me to think about him as someone who um, intentionally sort of inflicted cruelty and suffering on those men at Andersonville. I think the evidence against him for having perpetually, you know, actually killed people is pretty sketchy, right? I don't think it would hold up in a court of law, a civilian court of law. So if we discount that, do we hold him or should we hold him responsible, you know, in some way for those terrible conditions and for the 45% death rate, for the 12,000 men or nearly 13,000 men who perished at Andersonville? What was his responsibility for that? Who was ultimately responsible? You read one, uh, your reading for today was an account of Andersonville Prison by a survivor. It was actually his diary that he kept while he was there, Michael Doherty, uh, the online diary. And one thing I think that stands out about Doherty's account is that Wirtz doesn't appear very often. Right? There's not a lot of Wirtz. You know, he doesn't see Wirtz a lot. And actually, one of the things Wirtz said during his defense was that for most of the time, he was sick himself and confined to his house. So he wasn't out and about circulating, killing prisoners or, you know, kicking prisoners or sicking dogs on prisoners. You know, he said, I wasn't even around a lot. Um, and in Doherty's diary, he doesn't talk about Wirtz very much. Um, and Doherty actually has much harsher criticisms for men like Jefferson Davis, who he says, you know, the Confederate government didn't do its job. This is why the conditions in this camp are so bad. It's because Jeff Davis is sitting up there in Richmond and he doesn't care, right, what's happening to these prisoners at these camps. So, you know, it's a, it's a quandary. It's a problematic question that is that comes out of uh, the Civil War, and it's one that is really applicable to warfare in general, not just the Civil War, but lots of wars previous to that, and ones that are, are, are currently going on uh, today as well. So are there any questions about Henry Wirtz and Andersonville? Yes? Who makes the decision by trying somebody for a military tribunal instead of a civilian court? Um, the reason that that decision was made at the time was because the events had happened during the war. So they said this, you know, and Wirtz had been acting as an, as a, you know, an emissary or a, a person of the Confederate Army, and these were part of his war duties. So... Um, the army pretty much decided that this is a this is a wartime issue, so it can be decided by a military commission rather than a civilian court. Any other questions? Yes. Do you know if Wirtz ever um, like, uh, asked the Confederate government for better like better food or better like? Do- Was there any letters or anything, like any printed documents? Yeah, so did Wirtz ever ask for help from the Confederate government? Yes, he did. And there are letters that he sent to his superiors and said, you know, I need food, I need medicine, and they did say, we don't have any. 
right? So there is evidence that he did try to get some, some assistance, and there was no assistance forthcoming. Largely, you know, he was right that the Confederacy didn't have it to send. They didn't have food and shoes and medicine for their own troops at that time. Um, so I think that, I mean, to my mind, that's, that's a legitimate argument that he made. That's not simply, you know, sort of him trying to get out of responsibility. I mean, it's one of those cases that, which sort of makes you stop and think, well, what could he have done? What would I have done in that situation, you know? Um, and, you know, it could be at the end of the day, you know, Henry Wirtz is one of those pitiful figures who, um, you know, had the shoe been on the other foot, right? Had the Confederacy won and the Union lost, you know, you might think, would the superintendent of Camp Douglas or the superintendent of, Hel- of Elmira had been held accountable in the way that Wirtz was, Right. Winners get to write history, right? Um, and they also get to decide the terms of peace after a war is over. Any other questions? Yes? Was anyone else, like, did they attempt to hold anyone else accountable for what happened? Was anyone ever else held accountable for Andersonville? No. So they had initially hoped that Wurtz's trial would be the first of several. Right, and they wanted to bring Jefferson Davis and high-ranking Confederate leaders, uh, the men who had instigated and encouraged secession. They wanted to bring them to trial for treason, and in fact, Jefferson Davis is indicted, um, and he's held uh, on that indictment for nearly two years before he's finally released. Because um, government prosecutors really can't come to a consensus about whether or not he's guilty of treason, and if they could get a conviction, you know, for him, uh, for that. So it was um, no. So so Wirtz is really the only Confederate uh, official who is held accountable for certainly for Andersonville, but but really for the for what happened from 1861 to 1865. And it was an an ongoing question then. What should be done? Should these Confederate leaders be punished? Should they be executed? Um, Certainly there were people in 1865 who thought so, but there were many others who thought no, that the best way to move forward to try to bring the country back together is to avoid that kind of vengeance, some would say, or those kinds of, of really dramatic punishments, and just try to to move forward from that. We're going to start talking about Reconstruction next, um, and there were some uh, legal um, limitations or punishments for ex-Confederates, uh, and many people will argue today that they weren't, you know, they weren't very strict and they weren't harsh enough. Yes. Right. So yes, Wirtz is Wirtz's trial, as I mentioned at the beginning of the lecture, becomes sort of the precedent 
for what happens at Nuremberg and later in the 20th century where you have war crimes trials. So the Allied prosecutors, when they're preparing for the Nuremberg trials, they actually go back and they try to find where is where has this happened before? What's the precedent? And this was the, the main case they could find. And so they studied the Wartz trial, the transcripts, the eyewitness testimony to try to anticipate what the defense of the Nuremberg Nazis are, is going to be, right, and how they're going to counter that. So how do they counter, how do you prepare for the defense that I wasn't personally responsible, I was only following orders, which is the, the mainline defense of the, of the Nazi um, officials uh, at Nuremberg. So, you know, Wurtz is a really important um, case, for them in sort of setting the precedent of how to prosecute these kinds of cases when they occur later on in the 20th century. Yes? Uh, did Wirtz have um, legal representation? And if so, who was it? Yes, he did have legal representation. He had a couple of different lawyers. They were private lawyers uh, who represented him. Um, I can't think of their names off the top of my head, but he did have legal representation. He did have, you know, was entitled to that. You're still entitled to that with a, uh, with a um, military commission. He also had, you know, some uh, clergymen and, and other people who came out in support of him. Um, some other folks at the time who had been prominent in sort of uh, anti-capital uh, punishment, anti-death penalty movements in the mid-19th century you know, came out against his execution. They said, okay, he may, you know, he should be imprisoned but not executed. This is this is far too great a, a you know, punishment for him. Um, but in the end, you know, uh, he, Andrew Johnson could have pardoned him, President Johnson, um, but he chose not to do that in large part because the public outcry against what had happened at Andersonville was so great that... Um, I'm sure Johnson just thought it wasn't going to be politically expedient for him to pardon this particular person. And I think, too, I mean, one thing we haven't talked about is the fact that Wirtz was foreign-born, right? He's not an American by birth. He's Swiss, although he's often misidentified as German. He's not a Swiss. Um, you know, you have to wonder what role that played in him being found guilty um, as well, right? Because he's... Or, or, or being held accountable or being held up as an example, um, you know, did it matter that he was foreign-born and not American? Did that make a difference? Who's to say? Okay, thank you guys very much. I'll see you Friday. Join us every 